Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hi there, it's Alan Cross, and for the next few weeks of the ongoing history of new music podcast, we're going back to revisit a series we did a little while ago called 100 Weird Things About New Rock. This is a 10-part series, and it explored a lot of topics, with each episode dealing with a particular brand of weirdness. Sex, the law, drugs, strange recordings, excess, road stories, bad behavior, and more. There's a lot that goes into the music that we don't always hear about, despite what you may hear on the internet. So it's kind of like my job to fill you in. You ready for some weirdness? Okay, but don't say I didn't warn you. There's an old saying that goes, he who dies with the least regrets wins. Good words to live by, because by the time we all shuffle off this mortal coil, all of us are going to have done and said things that we wish we hadn't. Chances are we hope that no one finds out about this stuff. It's the skeletons in our closets, the pieces of our past that we try not to show to other people. But in the air of the tabloid and celebrity and paparazzi and Facebook and MySpace and Twitter and Wikipedia, blogs, TMZ.com, The Smoking Gun and Perez Hilton, it's getting harder and harder to keep the bad stuff buried. Nothing stays buried. It's always exhumed somehow. And you know the kind of stuff that I'm talking about. The rumor that Hitler's paternal grandparents were Jewish. The alien autopsies at Area 51. Angelina Jolie's alleged history of bisexuality. No, um, sorry, where, where was I? Um, anyway, this, this all got me thinking. What are some of the great secrets from the world of new rock and alternative music that today's performers would rather not discuss? Well... This is part two of 100 Weird Things About New Rock. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again. I'm Alan Cross, and this is the second show in a 10-part series that explores some of the weirdest aspects of new rock and alternative music. And this time, we're going to explore 10 of the deepest, darkest secrets of performers that you know very well. We're all about digging up the truth. Okay, full disclosure. There are many things about my past, as I'm sure there is about yours, that you would rather keep hidden. And just to show you that I'm all for a little give and take, I will offer this confession. For seven years, I took accordion lessons. And I was actually quite good. I appeared in a bunch of competitions and even won a couple. What? Well, yeah, there is such a thing as competitive accordion playing. Groupies. Well, Ukrainian grandmothers, maybe. Why do you think I retired? Anyway. Skeleton in the closet number one. Jack White of the White Stripes had planned to become a priest before music intervened. Okay, so this isn't really a bad skeleton, but it's something to which Jack doesn't draw a lot of attention. Jack is the son of Gorman and Teresa Gillis. This was a good Catholic couple. Jack was the youngest of 10, that's 10 kids, seven boys and three girls. And Gillis is Jack's birth name. He didn't become Jack White until he married Meg White and took her last name in some kind of gender reversal. Both mom and dad worked for the Catholic Archdiocese of Detroit. Mom was a secretary and dad worked in the maintenance department. When you're a son in a devout family such as this, it is expected that one day you will serve as an altar boy. 
And just like the six brothers before him, Jack carried his share of candles and crucifixes around the Church of the Holy Redeemer in Detroit. When he got older, Jack decided that perhaps he was hearing some kind of religious calling. He applied to and was accepted at a seminary in Wisconsin. The thinking was that the priesthood beckoned. Seminary school was the first step down that road to a life of piety and poverty and chastity. But Jack had a last-second change of heart, and he ended up in public school instead. Why? Well, he had just bought a new guitar amplifier and thought that he wouldn't be allowed to take it with him to the seminary. So, public school it was. So talk about a decision that changes your life, huh? No rock star superstardom, no marriage and divorce to Meg White, and he would have never, ever married a hot British model. Oh, and speaking of which, here's a point of trivia. When Jack married Karen Elson in 2005, they did not hold the ceremony in a Catholic church, as you might expect. They were married by a shaman priest in the Amazon basin at the confluence of three mystical rivers in Brazil. The ceremony was in a canoe. However, there was a post-ceremonial blessing by a Catholic priest at a nearby church. So, skeleton number one, the life that might have been for Father Jack Gillis. And appropriately, here's something from the White Stripes 2005 album, Get Behind Me, Satan. The White Stripes with Jack White, former altar boy from Detroit. Now, here's how we're going to make the segue to the next skeleton. As an altar boy, Jack White made an uncredited appearance in a movie. The film was called The Rosary Murders from 1987. Little Jack was cast as an extra. You can rent the movie and you can spot him. So, technically, this makes Jack White a child actor. And this explains some of his interest in acting as an adult. Anyone see him in Cold Mountain? Okay, here's another childhood truth. And this is one that Joe Strummer of The Clash played down his entire life. As leader of The Clash, Joe cultivated an image of a working-class, streetwise punk, complete with all the attendant socialist philosophies and politics. And he lived the life, too, living rough and practicing what he preached. But Joe did not come from a working-class background. In fact, he was quite posh and privileged. Joe, whose real name is John Miller, by the way, was born in Ankara, Turkey, while his dad, a British diplomat, was posted there by the British Foreign Service. Dad must have been pretty good at his job, too, because he was also given postings in Mexico City and Cairo and Bonn, West Germany. And this meant that Joe and his brother had some pretty cool perks. Security, good schools, nice living accommodations. Eventually, the family settled back in England, in Surrey, actually. John and Brother David went to private schools, the kind of schools to which a person such as a diplomat could afford to send his children. But by the time he was in his late teens, Joe had moved on to art school, where he began his transformation into a street musician and eventually a punk rocker. He considered his upbringing to be an embarrassment, and for the rest of his life, he did his best to separate Joe Strummer the punk from his previous life as John Miller, the privileged son of a diplomat. Joe Strummer, punk by profession, but posh by ancestry. Eddie Vedder, 
also has a rather interesting story from his childhood that he would probably not emphasize. This is Skeleton in the Closet number three. Eddie was a child model. Growing up in Chicago, Mum paraded Eddie through endless photo shoots and TV commercial auditions. If you know where to look, you can find pictures of Eddie modeling the latest back-to-school wear for the stylish five-year-old. He appeared in at least five different department store catalogs. He appeared in TV commercials for Hallmark greeting cards and Chuckles candy. And if you're a certain age, you may remember a commercial for Mattel's Big Wheel. You know that plastic trike that they used to sell with the big front wheel? It ran during Saturday morning cartoons. And one of the kids driving the big wheel? Eddie Vedder. Eddie's biggest triumph was probably his appearance on the nationally broadcast Bozo the Clown Show in the early 1970s. Now, of course, Eddie is a grunge icon with serious social, political, and environmental views. He would rather not be known as the cute child model for Bloomingdale's. Don't call me daughter, not fit to be the picture. Our fourth skeleton in the closet is the first of two that really does deal with death. Dave Navarro is known as the guitarist with Jane's Addiction and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. He was a judge on Rockstar Supernova, and he was Mr. Common Electra, among other things, for a while. Now, if you've ever met Dave, you'll know that he's a very nice, very personable guy. You would never know that he suffered a very severe childhood trauma. Dave was born in Santa Monica, California. His mom, Connie, was one of the models on Let's Make a Deal with Monty Hall. There was a divorce, and the family broke up. When Dave was 15, this would be about 1983, he found himself mixed up in a situation between his mom and her bodybuilder boyfriend, a dude named John Riccardi, who for some reason went by the name Dean. When the relationship went south, things got weird. Mom tried to get a restraining order against Dean, but the guy was a freak. On the night of March the 3rd, 1983, he broke into the house and waited. When Connie and her best friend Sue returned home, Riccardi was waiting for them. He shot both women to death and then ran. Dave might have been caught in the violence, but there was a last-second decision to spend the weekend with his father. Riccardi was on the run for almost eight years. It took a story on America's Most Wanted, the TV show, to bring Riccardi to justice. Thanks to a tip from a viewer, Riccardi was tracked down to a place in Houston, Texas, where he was arrested on January the 4th of 1991. He was brought to trial in California, where Dave testified against him. So John Dean Riccardi is now on death row in San Quentin. Here's Dave Navarro in a quote from America's Most Wanted. Well, you know, the murder, basically it tore our lives apart, to be honest with you. You know, it, uh, there's... Human beings are not equipped to know how to handle something like that, you know. And uh, as a result of that, you don't know what to do. You don't know where to turn. You don't know how to love, how to trust. You know, it, it completely throws your emotional stability out of bounds. And it takes some time to get past that and get it, get it back together. And, uh, of course, I mean, it's, it's natural. Um, what did I do to get past it? You know, I, um, I went through some really dark times. You know, I uh, ultimately uh, turned to my father quite a bit, you know, so me and my dad were, were brought closer as a result. We were very close anyway, but um, we really had each other to rely on.
Jane's Addiction, featuring guitarist Dave Navarro, a guy who had to endure the brutal murder of his mother and the trial of her killer. Our fifth skeleton is ultra-mild by comparison. If you run into Liam Gallagher of Oasis and he's wearing his trademark flip-flops, look at his left foot. Count the toes. You'll find six. It's a condition called polydactylism. He shares this condition with Oprah Winfrey, who also has six toes and a foot. Just thought you might like to know. More skeletons from closets as we continue with part two of 100 Weird Things About New Rock in just a second. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Very, very few careers in music begin fully formed. There are usually years and years of trial and error before you get the image, the attitude, and the music right. And occasionally, once a performer does get it right, they may not want to draw any attention to what they used to be. This is a challenge that faced Trent Reznor once he became known for being Nine Inch Nails, which brings us to Skeleton in the Closet number 6. Before Nine Inch Nails, Trent was in a bunch of other bands, all of which sounded very, very wimpy when compared to the sound that we all know and love today. All of these pre-Nine Inch Nails groups were based in the Cleveland area, and all of them released recordings, and all of them were a little embarrassing to Trent's more industrial-than-thou image. Now, there is a rumor that once Trent hit it big time in the late 1980s, he had his sister scour record stores in eastern Ohio and western Pennsylvania, buying up all the remaining evidence. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but I do know that Trent did try to disown that part of his musical past. Once came up in an interview that I did with him, and he was, uh, wasn't very happy about it. I do have a sample of one of the offending recordings, however. This dates back to 1983, when Trent was firmly in a new wave phase. The group was called Option 30, and uh, I just, just have to listen. Trent Reznor with a recording from a part of his career that he'd sooner forget. Weird Skeleton number 7 involves punk god Joey Ramone. Joey had some interesting quirks, one of which was a case of obsessive-compulsive disorder. Joey's OCD predated the Ramones. Some close to him suggest that it was a big reason why he was so shy and awkward and withdrawn in private life. And apparently, his OCD could get quite bad, controlling even the smallest aspects of his life. For example, he might step off a curb on the street and feel compelled to go back and step on and off and on and off and on and off the curb another 50 times. Often, he'd feel he'd have to repeat words over and over again, something that he said was prompted by things resembling voices in his head. He checked himself into the hospital at least once because his OCD got so bad. But Joey's OCD was almost never brought up and almost never discussed in public. And when it was, Joey would vehemently deny it. But after the cancer took hold and Joey began to come to terms with aspects of his life and death, he began to relax a little. In fact, if you go to Joey's 2002 solo album, Don't Worry About Me, you'll find a song called Like a Drug I Never Did Before. In those lyrics, he mentions his lifelong battle with obsessive-compulsive disorder. This is the only time he ever brought it up in his music. 
Have a listen. Joey Ramone, confessing his lifelong battle with obsessive-compulsive disorder. The song is Like a Drug I Never Did Before, from his 2002 solo album, Don't You Worry About Me. Skeleton number eight involves a secret love child. See, many years ago, this would be back in the 1980s, Gavin had a fling with a British fashion designer named Pearl Lowe. They then broke up, but then Pearl found herself with child. The question, however, was... Who is the father? Pearl had her suspicions, but Gavin wasn't even at the top of her list. It wasn't until the fall of 2004, 15 years after she gave birth to a girl named Daisy, that she persuaded Gavin to have a DNA test. And guess what? Gavin's the daddy. Oh, and it gets weirder. Gavin and Pearl remained very good friends even after the fling. In fact, Gavin was asked to be Daisy's godfather a task which he accepted. So Gavin Rossdale is actually the father of his goddaughter. And I'm not done. As an 18-year-old, Daisy posed nude in a magazine called Id. Needless to say, this whole revelation has put a strain on the relationship between Gavin and Gwen. Meanwhile, Pearl had to break the news to her current boyfriend, Danny Goffey, of the band Supergrass. So, Gavin Rossdale's love child, skeleton number eight. Bush, featuring Gavin Rossdale, father of a secret love child that's no longer much of a secret. Skeleton number nine has to do with Kurt Cobain. This is weird. Kurt had a thing for medical devices. Kurt's artistic aesthetic included things like images of fetuses and human anatomy. This went all the way back to grade school in his drawings for art class. If you've ever looked carefully at the artwork for the In Utero album, you'll see all kinds of disassembled and reconstructed dolls and medical models fetuses, embryo-like things. And this was in addition to his curiosity about various types of human excreta. You have to remember that this was a man who named one of his first bands Fecal Matter. Kurt also created art projects that looked like weird landscapes filled with things like images of diseased vaginas, photos that he found in old medical textbooks. And if you read his journals, you know, the book of writings published by Courtney Love in 2002, You'll find that Kurt seemed to have an obsession with bodily functions and said excreta, vomit and urine and mucus and poop. Again, this guy named his first band Fecal Matter. Kurt also apparently had a thing for vintage medical equipment and surgical gear. We're talking about things well beyond stethoscopes and blood pressure cuffs. I mean, things like old gynecological instruments. And at one point, it is said that Kurt had a full-sized medical dummy. One story says that not only did he keep it around the house, but that he toured with it, had its own trunk and everything. Very, very strange. Kurt also became enraptured by the story of a French perfume maker. His name was Jean-Baptiste Grandoui. His ultimate goal, this perfume maker, was to create a scent that smelled like virginity. Maybe you saw an adaptation of the story in a movie called Perfume, the story of a murderer, which came out in 2006. See, Grandoui was born with an 
almost supernatural sense of smell, and he sets out to create the ultimate perfume. In the process, he ends up murdering 25 young women as he tries to steal their essence, their scent, using some pretty awful methods, which basically involved either dissolving their bones or extracting their fat. Again, there's the surgical thing. Anyway, this story appealed to Kurt in some weird way, and he even wrote a song about it for the In Utero album. It's called Scentless Apprentice. Kurt Cobain's Weird Medical Fetish, Skeleton Number 9. Uh, no pun intended, of course. The tenth and final skeleton from this show has to do with a famous performer who may or may not have actually killed a guy. Who? Find out in a second. When you meet Brandon Flowers of The Killers, you're inevitably surprised at how quiet and shy he is. Sure, he said some pretty controversial things in the press, and he obviously has some strong opinions about a number of things, but physically he's... He's small, he's slight, and he's soft-spoken. Which is why it's so surprising to hear about how he might have killed a guy. The story goes back to a traffic accident in 2001. Brandon was driving somewhere in the Las Vegas area when he hit a pedestrian. He drove into a guy who was standing on the freeway. Let me give you the actual quote from an interview he gave to GQ magazine. I hit him pretty fast. I was going about 50. He was drunk. He just walked into my lane on the freeway. I was honking and hitting the brakes, but I couldn't stop in time. I hit him. It was terrible. Pretty traumatic. He hit my windshield, smashed it up. His shoes fell off. His shoes fall off. Did you know that? When the police arrived, they questioned Brandon, and they let him go. The weird thing, though, is that he never, ever found out about what happened to this guy. Did he recover? Or is the singer of the killers really a killer? Brandon doesn't like to talk about it. And really, can you blame him? Well, somebody told me you had a boyfriend who looked like a girlfriend that I had in February of last year. It's not confidential. I've got potential. The Killers featuring Brandon Flowers. I wonder what happened to that guy he hit with his car. If the dude recovered, do you think that he knows what became of the guy who hit him? Think he'd be a fan? Performers can be weird people, but that's often part of the gig. It's their job to be strange and controversial and outrageous. It's what they do for a living. That's how they get paid. But then there are the people who buy what they're selling. The fans. Now, of course, it's one thing to enjoy a performer's work. It's another thing entirely to become obsessive and dangerous. On the next episode of 100 Weird Things About New Rock, we're going to look at the crazies, the stalkers, and the downright murderous who count themselves amongst the greatest music fans in the world. Join me next time for part three of 100 Weird Things About New Rock. The fans, the stalkers, and the crazies. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. 
Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.